You are now listening to the August 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. This is Jisoo King, your host for the program, In the Beginning, The History of the Biblio. Have you heard some reasons that people give for not believing in the Bible? You've probably heard a non-believer say something along the lines of, this is why I don't believe in the Bible. I personally have heard non-believers largely give two reasons. First, they say that the Bible is a made-up story and not the truth. And second, they argue that Bible has been modified to benefit Christians, as it has been passed down in history. Of course, one cannot see the Bible as truth without faith in God. However, an inquiry into the Bible's literary history and archaeological discovery can confirm that the Bible is accurate. During our last broadcast, we confirmed that the second reason, that the Bible has been modified to benefit Christians, is not true. We revealed that the Dead Sea Scrolls recorded around 100 BC and the Masoretic Texts recorded around 900 AD that have a time gap of nearly 1,000 years between, are nearly identical. This proves how accurately the Bible text has been preserved. We also explain that there exist thousands of New Testament manuscripts, and that the time difference between the original and the oldest copy was too little to doubt the New Testament's accuracy. The Old and New Testaments have an extensive history, but the content has not been altered. Also, A lot of archaeological evidence that proves the Bible is not a made-up story but the truth is constantly being discovered. Today we're going to look at several of these artifacts. To begin, we can look at the Ebla texts. Between 1930 and 1970, archaeological digs at the ancient cities of Mari, Nuzi, and Ebla unearthed libraries housing many historical artifacts. The age of the texts excavated there fit the estimated time period of the Book of Genesis. Also, the text helps highlight the biblical text by revealing the social background of the tribal period. The Ebla texts that were estimated to be from around 2300 BC mention many of the names of tribal chiefs recorded in Genesis. The text also mentions locations like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in Genesis chapter 14. Because no other texts beside the Bible mention these locations, Until this discovery, many scholars argued that the biblical records of Sodom and Gomorrah were made up. However, the Ebla texts prove the existence of the places named Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, because the records of the ancient Near East did not include mentions of the Hittites, many people considered their existence a biblical legend. But due to the discovery of records of the Hittite people in Bagaskoy, Turkey, the Bible was proven accurate once again. In addition, many scholars argue that the biblical mentions of Assyria and Nineveh in the book of Jonah were made up because there was no historical evidence of these cities. However, the discovery of an artifact from Nineveh in 1846 proved the existence of both Assyria and Nineveh. The city of Nineveh was found underwater. This proved that the prophecy foretold in the book of Nahum stating that Nineveh would perish from flood was accurate as well. 
Another record proving the accuracy of the Bible is a hieroglyphic tablet left behind by King Belshazzar, a figure that appears in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 5, the last king of Babylon, King Belshazzar, appears. For a long time, scholars were under the belief that the last king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. These scholars believed records of Belshazzar to be biblical fiction. Later, a hieroglyphic tablet was discovered in the ruins of Babylon. This tablet stated that Belshazzar was King Nebuchadnezzar's first son who ruled alongside his father. Because of this tablet, concerns regarding the accuracy of Daniel chapter 5 were resolved as well. Archaeological evidence proving the accuracy of biblical content is not limited to just these artifacts mentioned here, but are being discovered even to this day. These artifacts alone do not prove that the Bible is true. Yet historical artifacts such as these once again confirm the Bible is an accurate account of history. An eminent figure in Israel's archaeology, Nelson Gluick, said the following, quote, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And, by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. End quote. What thoughts come to your mind after hearing about these artifacts? Some of you may be in awe that so many artifacts exist. Others of you might think, even if there is all of this evidence, would this make non-believers believe? There have been people who met Christ through such evidence. An example of one such as this is Lee Strobel. Recently, a book containing his testimony, The Case for Christ, was made into a movie. Lee Strobel was a journalist and a strong atheist who visited professors, historical scholars, doctors, and many other professionals in order to collect evidence proving the resurrection of Christ to be a lie. However, after two years of searching, Strobel discovered instead that the death of Christ and his resurrection is truth and something no one can refute. A pursuit that began in an effort to prove Christ's resurrection to be a lie led him to believe in the truth of his resurrection, and Strobel was made humble. Afterwards, Strobel studied theology and became a pastor and author who has since published many books evangelizing the gospel. There are other people who came to believe in Christ through artifacts that prove the truth of the Bible. And of course, there are people who still deny the truth of the Bible despite such evidence. But we all know that the power to confess Christ as our Lord does not come from human strength, but from the Holy Spirit. And such evidence could not have appeared without God at work. The book of Romans tells us that if we are to deny God, even though he reveals himself to us through his creations, we cannot flee his wrath. The following verse is from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Quote, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. End quote. I hope that you, as I do, believe that the Bible is an accurate historical account and God's truthful message that by believing so, obey his message faithfully. We end here. See you next week.
faithful in every way And I would declare that your love lasts forever And I need to worry my eyes fixed on you Cause you have my heart all of my life I will lift your name on high King of all Cause you are my strength The beginning and the end And I will seek you
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. I wish I would have scheduled a happy and blissful fairy tale message for you today. Gentlemen, um, don't screw this up. Okay, yeah, open the door for her, plan something, uh, don't screw it up, do it big. Uh, she's better than you deserve, that's for sure. Well, today we are going to hear the last teaching message on the subject of anger, and we're going to touch on something called unresolved anger. Uh, unresolved anger is exactly what it sounds like. It's This type of anger has to do with something that's unresolved in our life. Maybe there's a situation that's unsettled. Maybe there's something or someone in your life that troubles you or unnerves you. Just the thought of it maybe scares you, it irritates you, and ultimately it controls you with anger. These are all signs of unresolved anger. This podcast is part four of four, and it comes from a teaching series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. Now, for those of you who are new to the podcast, the sex spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are in this habit, this bondage, or this addiction to pornography. And make no doubt about it, pornography is a series of predictable habits that we have created for ourselves. Now, that's the bad news, is that we don't realize this. The good news is that as you listen as you review and you start applying this material to your lives, you, by the grace of Almighty God, you will break free from the bondage of pornography. Jesus, Jesus didn't die for your sin and rise from the dead for you to remain an addicted Christian. He just didn't. Life is, is so much better than what you're experiencing. He, he came for freedom. And in fact, you're already free. You just haven't experienced it yet. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how righteous anger is a defense for God and for others. Number two, how unrighteous anger stems from someone or something that's in my way of an unreached goal or plan. And number three, how we must acknowledge and understand that there's a difference between being angry and unresolved anger. So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled, How Our Past Controls Our Future. When I was getting my permit, my uh, so one of my students was just, for whatever reason, he was just really nervous about having his gun in his car. So he gets pulled over for speeding, and he's freaking out because he has a gun in the car. And the cop comes up to him and he, 
He's like, sir, driver's license. And the guy goes, he's got his hands on the steering wheel, and he goes, I got a gun! (laughs) And the cop goes, it's okay, sir, I've got one too. (laughs) Isn't that hilarious? Key point number one, righteous anger is a defense for God and others. Unrighteous anger, number two, stems from someone or something uh, that's in the way of my unreached goal or plan. So just taking your driving in example. You're in the way of this guy getting home on time. He's got a goal, he's got a plan, and you're slowing him down. He's riding you, and we have a choice to make, right? We can get out of his way, he can go around us, we can slam on the brakes, we can tell him he's number one. There's a lot of thing there, right? But does that make sense? When we get angry, think about it. This is a big deal. The next time that you get angry, what is blocking what you want to get done? Something's in the way of you getting something done. And it becomes frustration. Frustration is anger. So key point number three, we must acknowledge and understand that there is a difference between being angry and unresolved anger. So the question becomes, do you know the exact reason why you're angry? And there's a good chance that your past is still controlling your future. And because that's going on, you're actually making decisions based out of your past. So unresolved anger is just, you don't know why you're angry. You come home and you quick, you kick the wife's cat just for fun, right? It's a heaviness. There's, a, there's an edge to you. All right, give a short example of something that made you angry over the past week. Discuss the source of your anger and the type of anger and then what you learned tonight so how you can not do that again. How exactly do we stop being angry? Well, the first thing to do is is to really determine what it is that you're angry about. Is this righteous or is this unrighteous anger? In other words, is this something that Jesus himself would be angry about? Or is this something that only involves you? Secondly, we must identify the cause of the anger. Am I angry out of being hurt? Is there an injustice going on? Am I angry because I'm fearful? Or am I angry because of my level of frustration? It's up to a boiling point. Once I identify the type and the cause of my anger, then I can start to get my emotions back in check. And this is easier said than done, I know. And if you need to count down from like 10 to 1 or take a few deep breaths or maybe walk around the block, do whatever you need to do so you don't lose control. And here's the reality. We talk a lot about being aware of your emotions, of things around you inside the teaching of the sex spiral. So are you aware of your emotions? Are you aware of your tone, the way that you talk to people, especially your spouse and your kids? Are you aware of your words and how cutting your tongue can be? Most of us aren't. But once you start becoming aware then once again, you can, by God's grace, you can begin to change these sinful behaviors. 
Let me ask you this. How aware are you of all the pornified pop-up ads on your computer? Are you trying to be a good Christian and not look at them? Well, let me suggest something to you. Stop trying, stop white knuckling this thing and get rid of all that stuff once and for all. And you know what? It has nothing it has nothing to do with being a good Christian. I, I don't even know what that means. It's, it's about being a wise Christian. So if you don't have a current filtering software system on your digital devices, let me recommend Covenant Eyes filtering software. I've been using Covenant Eyes for years. Uh, let me encourage you to, to write this down and, and visit the, the website today. It's CovenantEyes.com. And when you do, you can receive a 30-day free trial. doesn't cost you anything. And all you have to do is put my full name in the promo box with no spaces. And when you sign up, you're also supporting the ministry of Seven Places and this podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's a group that focuses on healthy sexuality. It's for both men and women, single, divorced, husbands and wives, Everybody is welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor, and you can email me your questions. You can visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, he says, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. That power is the very name. It's the very shed blood of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior God.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is membership based on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at what God's Word says about God's people. Now, if you're wondering what the word church actually means, it actually comes from a, a Greek word, ekklesia, that we find in the New Testament, a word that means an assembly, a gathering, or a congregation of people. And so that's why the prose called churchology ecclesiology. But we're going to be thinking about the church uh, this morning. Now, you should know and be encouraged that you are fortunate to have pastors and elders who actually love the church and love to study what the Word of God says about the church. But we actually believe the Bible says something about how we ought to gather together, about how we ought to live together, and what it looks like and what it means for us to be the people of God here in the New Testament. Now, Josh Griever kicked us off a couple of weeks ago saying uh, something that I thought was so encouraging. He said, I want you to leave astonished at the wisdom and goodness of God in creating the church. Isn't that good? I think you in your hearts know that it is a good thing and that we ought to be astonished by the nature of the church and what God has done. And my hope is that that sense grows in you throughout this season and this series. Now, I think that it's a good overall goal for the way that we think about the church over these coming weeks. See, last week, you'll remember two weeks ago, that Josh showed us that Israel was the visible people of God, committed in covenant to Him to display God's glory to the nation. And we as the church are actually Israel 2.0. We are a group of regenerate folks who have gathered around Christ to display His glory to the nations until Christ returns. So my job today, I believe, is to give that vision hands and feet and a a torso, uh, arms, legs, I believe that what we want to see today is that vision of the universal church actually take on body form and a visible presence in local churches where we are membered. And that's what I want to think about today. You know, I often tell people that 
the greatest challenge that I faced early in ministry was actually talking about membership, and I didn't understand that this would be such a controversial issue. It was controversial when I was on the East Coast, where the hardest thing I had when it came to church membership was to get dead people off the membership rolls. True story. I think they thought there was like a hyperlink to the Lamb's Book of Life. But when I got to the West Coast, it was like everything changed. Like people were having trouble with it, but for the opposite reason, uh, the hardest thing I had that I faced when I came here to the West Coast was actually getting living people onto the membership rolls. And here I think people have a, a very strong sense of individualism. In fact, it, it might be that many have even been influenced by the independence of our age or even pietism, you know, that religious belief that salvation is an individual kind of experience and has nothing to do with community or physical or visible things, has much more to say about what it looks to be a spiritual people. In fact, I believe that the Bible says a lot about what it means for us to be members of one body. In other words, as you're reading through the New Testament, a local church is assumed all over the place where people are actually membered to it in the ways that we're going to be talking about this morning. I want you to know that membership is a helpful word that we use. We'd use a better word if we had one, but a helpful word to discuss what it means to be officially a part of a local church. And yet Trinity is a core theological doctrine for anybody that considers themselves to be orthodox, but a helpful word to help us think about what it means about the nature of who God is. In the same way, I think membership helps us think about what we are called to do as the people of God right now. Now, you may struggle with this. But I want to do two things this morning. I have two purposes. First, I hope to show that the way God has worked and is working in redemptive history has always been through an embodied gathering of people. God has always done that. He has always been working through an embodied gathering of people. And second, I want to expose you to the biblical benefits and responsibilities that come with membership. So I want you to show the value of it. I want you to show you throughout the scriptures. And then I want to also show you What are the benefits and responsibilities of membership? Now, to clarify what I'm talking about, I wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page. I'm going to be using some words throughout. So I came up with some definitions to help you follow along. So those definitions are actually in your bulletin. You can follow along there. Uh, But these are the definitions that I'm going to be assuming as I'm talking about the church today and throughout the series. The first is the universal church. The universal church is the body and bride of Christ, her head, made up of all the children of God throughout the ages. We also believe in the local church, and the local church, as I'm using it, is a group of Christians officially committed to one another in covenant relationship with its elders and deacons to meet regularly in a particular place and time to hear gospel preaching, observe the ordinances of baptism and communion, and practice church discipline until Jesus returns. And then the third definition is church membership. Church membership is a Christian's formal obedient submission to a particular local church, manifesting an embodied evidence of the spiritual reality of union with Christ and his body, the church. Here we go. First, our first point is this. An embodied king came for an embodied gathering or kingdom of people. Focus on this in two ways. The first is this. Jesus came in the flesh. I hope you're okay with me starting with Jesus, but I think Jesus is a great place to start like all the time. And so when we think about this idea of church membership, I think it's important for us to recognize that God has always demonstrated his glory 
through visible embodied groups of people. And I believe there's a connection here to why Jesus appearing in the flesh was such a big deal in 1 John. So you can look in 1 John chapter 4, and you'll remember that there, there were some false teachers that were arguing that Jesus did not come in a body, that he was a little bit more like, I think that's a great image of what the people of 1 John seem to be believing. That Jesus didn't really come in a kind of physical form, but he actually came in some kind of mystical, sort of ghost-like, visible experience to save his people. Well, that's why we find John in 1 John 4, 2-3 saying, actually, it's important to recognize that Jesus came in the flesh. See, the false teachers believed that the body was potentially evil, The Spirit was good, and yet in 1 John 4, 2-3, He says, By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So don't miss this. We serve an embodied King who died to save an embodied people. God's Word clearly says that humans are more than biology, but they are not less than bodies. That is true, Old Testament, New Testament, and the new heavens and the new earth. See, Jesus died in the body on the cross as a sacrifice for you because He came, catch this, to save all of you. He didn't come to save your soul and not your body, but body and soul. And that's why He had to come in the flesh. We find in the Bible that God is very clear that if you serve God with your body and not with your heart, then you're a hypocrite. And if you say that you serve God with your soul but not your body, First John says you're a liar. Real Christian is a Christian in body and soul, someone who follows God. God wants you, hear me, to love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, right? And your mind. And if Jesus came as a hologram, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. But if Jesus died in the flesh, he cares about redeeming embodied worshipers. And that's why Jesus says that if the eye causes you to sin, you need to gouge it out because it's better to lose your eye than for your body to burn in hell. Positively, it points to heaven as a renewed physical universe where we have renewed physical bodies where we will worship an embodied king forever on visible, tangible, physical people worshiping God with all that they are, not just their imaginations. A second thing here, Jesus died for an embodied people with an emphasis on people. We see that in Titus 2.14 that we're about to look at. You'll notice also that your life reflects a kind of disinterest in meeting with tangible people, right? So most folks, when they want to know how socially networked you are, that used to mean how many people you know, but now it means how many Facebook friends you have. Now, how many of you could honestly say that you have seen a majority of your Facebook friends in the last month? And yet, how many people actually would say that that is kind of the way that I understand myself as being connected or not connected or disconnected? And yet, we haven't had a bodily experience with many of those people that we consider ourselves to have significant relationship. I even read of an English lady recently who's petitioned to marry her robot, right? So we're we're starting to misunderstand what it means to be human, that we are bodied people who have spirits or souls and bodies. In fact, our staunch cultural individualism, it's not just 
a philosophical misfiring. It's more than that. I believe that our individualism is deeply theological. In other words, we misunderstand what it means to be embodied relationally because we misunderstand who God is. And so we need to be reminded. See, this age of meism needs to hear what God's Word has to say about an embodied weism. We are not just me's, we are we's. We are not just a person, but a people. And Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus Christ gave Himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, did you catch that? Jesus didn't just come for a me, but a we. And Jesus came as the king of a kingdom of people, not just as a life coach for a person. So God is worried about a community of people that he has drawn to himself. Now, please do not understand me here. This might be a place where you could misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that you individually do not need to respond to the gospel. In fact, each of us must individually turn for this world to living for Christ who came in his body to save his body, the church, and was raised bodily to prove the gospel is truth that you can stake your life on. But if you're a non-Christian and you put your faith in Christ today, and I hope you would, I want to make sure you understand what it is that you are doing. See, faith recognizes what one author dredges up this word, the imperium of Jesus Christ. An imperium is a word that speaks of an ultimate authority. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are saying that the buck stops with Jesus. He is the great authority over all things. The desires of my heart, they are not supreme. It is the sovereignty of Christ that reigns supreme even over my desires and whether or not I desire what I ought. Faith recognizes Christ is that highest authority and He is an authority over not just a person, but over a kingdom of embodied people. So if you truly place your faith in King Jesus, you will also join a local embodied assembly of people called a church where Jesus reigns right now. Did you know that Jesus is like king right now over us? That his word reigns supreme over you and me? And our local church is a testimony to that. In fact, Christian, God has always worked through an embodied people to display his glory by imaging himself to the surrounding world through them. See, God created Adam and Eve in the beginning, as in his image and after his likeness. And you'll remember, Israel was created as a people to display the glory of God to the nations. That wasn't just a metaphor. They literally bodily were meant to live in such a way that it was identifiable that this group mirrored and exalted and lifted up on high the name of their God who redeemed them. And so Ephesians 2, 14 to 15 tells us that God even now is doing something very similar, but something new. See, the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it reconciles us to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And in fact, those brothers and sisters look a lot different than us. We look like a very strange adoptive family where we are not quite paying attention to what one another look like or where we're from. And Ephesians 2, 14 to 15 says the gospel does this. It not only reconciles us to God, but catch what Paul says. It obliterated the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, creating one new what? Body 
visible, identifiable group to display his power. And so the gospel creates a people, a new family and kingdom that images God to the world. It creates a community such that salvation includes membership in God's group. Don't you want to be part of God's group? Aren't you glad you are part of God's group? Salvation means that you are part of the people of God. What a glorious truth that is. But if you love Jesus, we are told that you will also love his bride, the church. And that is in real time. Not just conceptually. Not just in your imagination. They'll say something like, I love Jesus. And I even love the universal church. But I don't really like local churches for all kinds of reasons. Which ultimately fit into the category that they are messy and inconvenient. I mean, just fill in the blank. And I get what they mean by that, because I'm a pastor, and I see the mess, and I see the inconvenience. But this really also reminds me of a quote by a, a great theologian, Linus from Peanuts, who said, I love mankind, it's people I hate. Right? Like, I know I'm supposed to love the people of God, but my problem is the actual people of God. And I'm sure that Jesus would have been surprised by that. The New Testament does speak of the universal church. It does. But it largely speaks to specific local churches. of Real people, like Paul's letters to Rome and to, to Corinth and to Ephesus, or the seven local churches that were held accountable in Revelations 1-3, to specifically held accountable for the way they lived. And I want to encourage you as we continue in this series to realize I believe there's a much stronger connection between the universal church and the local church than what you have thought in the past. That I think does a great job of explaining the biblical relationship between that universal church that we all love and those local churches that we want to love, right? We should take note that the individual congregation or group of believers in a specific place like us is never regarded as only a part or component of the whole church. The church is not a sum or a composite of the individual local groups. But instead, the whole is found in each place. In other words, when we speak of the church at Trinity Bible Church, we are not less than the true church of Jesus Christ. King Jesus truly reigns over local churches submitting to King Jesus institution that represents one nation inside of another nation. So it declares its home nation's interest to that host nation, and it protects the citizens of the home nation living in that nation. So we in in the local church represent the city of God surrounded by the city of man. We are declaring the interest of our King Jesus to a lost and dying world, and we are here to visibly manifest the glory of God to them. Ephesians 3.20, Paul tells us the church has an amazing citizenship. And you need to be reminded of this this morning, because this, if you're tired, this is something that ought to wake you up. It says, our citizenship is where? In heaven. Is, right now, in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And we, from it, await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the embassy. We are awaiting the return of Christ, but our citizenship is where our king is, King Jesus. So our home nation is where Jesus is. 
but he reigns where we are in our local church embassy. You go to a local church and you declare that I believe the gospel, and I intend to live as one who has come under the sovereignty of King Jesus. And can you just sort of stamp my passport? And that's what we're doing. We're declaring that we really believe you to have citizenship in heaven. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Could it be that maybe the way that we view the local church is like an inch deep when God says it actually should be like a mile deep? Well, that's what I want to do. I want us to think about for a moment the kind of benefits and responsibilities that we're talking about when we talk about church membership. And my hope is is that we begin to plumb the depths of what it means to be a committed member of a local church. And so we're going to look at a number of these. I've got a list of six, one short of perfection because who's perfect, right? And we're going to look at these one by one, and I hope that you see the way that God wants to give you both benefits, privileges, and responsibilities in joining yourself to other Christians. And so here we go. This is our second main area of discussion. That's this, the benefits and responsibilities of membership. First, first benefit and responsibility is a loving community. This is the foundational one, a loving community. I'm just curious, uh, would any of you like a loving community? Anybody? Is anybody grateful for the loving community that we have here? I am so grateful. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us and a fallen humanity hopes of the loving community that we long for. Only the gospel does that. In John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And you'll remember there in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so ought you to love one another. Now, I love the context of this because you'll remember that Jesus had just served the disciples by washing their feet. One of the lowest possible duties that someone could have accomplished for someone else. It was a low role. And as I read that, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, this is the man who has skills, right? He's raised the dead, he's healed the sick, and he probably could be doing something much better with his time than washing feet. Couldn't somebody else do that? And yet Jesus says this kind of sacrificial love is the model of what God-like love is going to look like between disciples. This is important because this was just a foreshadowing of a greater act of service and humiliation that would later be carried out on the cross when Jesus died for sinners to make them right with His Father in heaven. And that cruciform or cross-shaped love that Christ demonstrated, I believe, is the picture of the one-anotherness that we read all over the rest of the New Testament. I believe what Jesus is saying is, when you read one another, that is speaking of the kind of sacrificial love that I am calling each of you to when you are living in committed relationship with one another. It is a sacrificial kind of love. So Jesus here has told us that's what loving one another looks like. I believe those 61 another's of the New Testament are primarily, if not exclusively, applied in the context of the local church with real, messy, flesh-and-blood people. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13, he tells the, church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't miss this. Your chief act of freedom 
is actually denying yourself, taking up your cross, and loving others sacrificially. That's what biblical freedom looks like. You're no longer a slave to sin and selfishness, but you are freed to go about the cabin and love as God loves. That's the meaning of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel, to draw us into love of others as God has loved us. Sacrificially serving one another is actually, hear me, this is important, a perk and benefit of membership, not a prerequisite. We get to serve one another as Christ served us because Christ has served us at the cross. That's why we say, if you want to serve us, that's great. Like, that's not the chief way, reason we want you to join us. That's actually a benefit of, of serving with us is that you join us in our mission of making much of Christ. As we love one another self-sacrificially, we are actually imaging Christ to others. And so we want to be honest about who Christ is and make sure those who are with us actually love Jesus. That's why we ask people to join before they serve. See, our church family commits to loving and serving one another visibly to exalt Christ's reign on earth. So, I feel sad for church hoppers who are often simultaneously running after and away from a loving community at the same time. And here's what I mean. Loving community takes the combination of two things, sacrificial love and time. And if you run away from a body that you've committed yourself to and spent much time with, then you are running away from an investment that ultimately builds up into the kind of loving community that Jesus speaks of. So you serve what you love and you love what you serve. And this loving community is a benefit that comes with responsibilities. The responsibility of officially committing yourself to loving, please hear me closely, I want to make sure this this is honest, you are committing yourself to loving other weird messy people and sacrificial ways. You are not committing to loving the ideal human who always responds the way that you think that they should. You are not committing to loving a non-sinner who will never mess up. You are committing to loving weird people like me. And if you think you've seen the weirdness, just ask my wife, it goes deep. We are weird people. And here's the deal, you're thinking like, Okay, good, I can commit to that as long as you're like straight up front with me. But be straight up front with yourself. You're weird too. You're a weird people that God has called to love other weird people. And if you don't get that straight, you'll never understand what it means to live in loving community. So love weird people and know that you're weird. That's point one if you want to be honest. When loving others is hard, love without grumbling and you are getting close to a cross-like love. But there's a second thing, benefit and responsibility of leadership, membership, it's submitting to leadership. Now you remember that Paul says that pastors and teachers are actually a gift to the church. He says that in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, where he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of the church. God gave these shepherds or pastors to the church as a gift. So shepherds who open up God's Word and they show you that God is in His Word sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. Those are gifts to you, the church, straight from God, straight from heaven. Pastors who actually are willing to pray for you and to rebuke you where they see your life or your doctrine is out of line. They are a gift that God has given that you need in your life. 
Now, I know that sounds strange to you, but maybe this sounds stranger. I believe that your Bible is indeed sufficient to lead you to live a godly life. But catch this. Your Bible also says that you need pastors to help you believe right and live right. Did you catch that? So if you really believe your Bible, your Bible says you need pastors. Now, I know that sounds strange in an individualistic culture, but the benefit of having godly leaders, it also comes with responsibilities. So look with me in Hebrews 13, 17. This is a verse that really, I believe, ought to drive your prayers for your pastors and your elders. Same thing. You should be driven in your prayer life by this verse and what you are called to, but also what pastors are called to. Notice what he says. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, who do you think the pastors have to give an account to here? Well, I think it's clear from 2 Timothy and elsewhere. It's to Jesus on the last day when he returns. It's a common theme in the Bible. We'll be held accountable for our shepherding and teaching. Now think about this. If you knew that you were going to have to give an account to Jesus for how you looked over, shepherded, and cared for somebody, wouldn't you want to know specifically who it was you were going to be giving an account for? And... You're responsible for having all of them fed and in bed when I get back, and please don't lose all of them. Last time that happened, that was horrible. Of course not. Nobody would sign up for that gig. Well, even more so if you're thinking about the king of the universe showing up to hold us accountable. And so we want to to have mercy and grace towards our pastors growing on five million people in Phoenix. You would want to know who of those people a pastor is accountable for. I do. I want to know. I want a membership directory that tells me who am I going to be held accountable for on that last day. And those are the people that I am praying regularly for as one who will have to give an account. I don't have to give an account for everybody, but I do have to give an account for those. See, Jesus left the 99 for the one because he knew who his sheep were. I don't do goats. I talk to goats about becoming sheep, but I'm not responsible for goats. See, membership is the vehicle that lets us know who we will have to give an account for. Love leaders by letting them know you are formally submitting to their leadership. But members are responsible too. Did you notice that a member is to submit joyfully to the leaders because it will be of no advantage of them for leaders to be a rebellious group of gripers? Like if, if members are rebellious and gripers, that's not really a benefit. Now, I think that what he's talking about, the benefit is on that last day when Christ returns and they have to give an account for how they follow the leaders who are following Christ. So please don't miss this. This is, I think, very important in our age. So if you are joining a church, you are responsible to the pastors of your local church that you commit to, which leads to another related aspect or benefit of membership. It's accountability assurance, not insurance. See, accountability assurance are good friends with responsibilities and benefits. So you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus promises to build his church on the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, I will give you, speaking of the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
See, Jesus gives the church the power of the keys, and that's any local church under King Jesus. The local church is a microcosm of the city of God or an embassy of God. And so those who join a church receive assurance that what is bound on earth in membership is bound in heaven. It says something about the nature of who they are. Now this assurance is a benefit of membership, but it comes with the responsibility of accountability. Now remember in James 5, 19 to 20, James speaking to Christians says, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from this wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You'll notice here the wandering that he's saved from is wandering from the truth. I don't know if you've noticed this. I found that most Christians who begin to to wander from the truth first wander from a local church. They wander from a body of believers before they wander from the faith of Jesus Christ. They quit going to church and then begin to question the truth of God's Word. God says you need accountability in your life. But not only that, we see the flip side of assurance in church discipline. So in 1 Corinthians 5, you remember the man is disciplined out of the church for living in egregious public unrepentant sin. And Paul says, hand him over to Satan. That's one of those texts that you're thinking to yourself, man, that sounds like really cruel to hand someone over to Satan. But the goal is restoration. And for Paul, there are only two zip codes. He says there is the zip code of the city of God and of the city of man. Satan reigns in the world, but Jesus Christ reigns in the local church. Don't miss this. Both 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 say that members of a local church are responsible as a final court of appeals for unrepentant members going out. That includes pastors who are caught in sin in 1 Timothy 5.19. They too are accountable to the church for what they teach and how they live. Now it makes sense that they would also be responsible for voting on new members who they would give an account for. That's the beauty and benefit of this, is that elders and other members will come after you if you wander from the truth. There's a fourth thing, experiencing spiritual gifts. Church of the living God, the body of Christ, is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit thrives amidst a people of God. So what this means is, is that When you join a church, you are joining with the benefit of the spiritual gifts of others. And you're also responsible for using your gifts to be a blessing to the body. Now this is, I found to be really helpful to maturity in a Christian life. I found that that it is a blessing to be the benefit, the benefactor of your spiritual gifts. I am not as generous as some Christians in this body. But I have found that I am constantly compelled to want to be more generous by the generosity of so many of you. I'm not as good with children as Leslie Egolf is, but I'm very grateful that she's good with children and I can learn how to be better with children. I'm not as good with hospitality. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which many of you are gifted in very diverse kinds of ways, and it makes me a better Christian as I see it and as I am convicted by it. If so many folks here who are so faithful, faithful in evangelism like Reuben, faithful in all kinds of different ways, and I am grateful for that. The point is that I benefit from your gifts and am encouraged to grow. And I'm also responsible to sacrifice and serve you in ways that God has gifted me. Fifth, gathering together in worship. 
Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a special thing spiritually that happens when we gather together to stir one another up. The, The Holy Spirit works in a unique way in community. So says the Bible from what he works in individuals' lives. So that I believe that there will be a discernible amount of growth and maturity in the person who is committed to a local church and the person who is not. So the Holy Spirit who seals us thrives when we commune together. Possible. So we are responsible to come and to stir up one another as we benefit from being stirred up. I'm just curious, on Sunday morning when you come to church, do you take the responsibility of stirring others up seriously? You know what I'm saying? Do you come ready to stir up others? Now clearly the picture here is a group of Christians loving one another in otherworldly ways, such that those on the outside are looking inside at a group of people who discernibly love one another in an otherworldly way, over time in a particular place, such that they say, these are the people of God under the reign of God and King Jesus. See, Jesus never said non-Christians should belong before they believe. Membership clearly identifies who intends to represent Christ and who does not, so that churches can welcome sinners far from God. The murkier membership becomes, the less clear and embodied the church's imaging God to a lost and dying world becomes. So don't miss this. The Bible says the local church is God's evangelistic strategy for humanity this side of the cross. He wants a group of people gathered loving one another sacrificially to declare what God is like and what Christ is like. You know what excites me most about Trinity right now? Is that we are growingly diverse as a congregation and gathered around Christ loving one another in discernible, visible, sacrificial ways in such a way that new people notice. There is something different going on here. So it was the compelling love of the community that actually brought them in and caused, them, caused him to stay and actually to listen to what the preacher was saying. He said, what is it that they're listening to that is making them live in this way? What do these people actually believe? And it was actually through staying and listening to the preaching of the word and seeing the love of the community that caused him to repent and turn to Christ and become a believer. The thing that drew him was the exact thing that Jesus calls the church to be, a body of people loving one another to the glory of Christ that is compelling to a lost and dying world. That is exactly what we've been called to be as a church. And I sense that that is something that is happening more and more amongst us to the glory of God. Please hear me. God wants you to love others here sacrificially in an otherworldly way that dumbfounds the world and that lights up effulgently with the power of God on display in real time, in a real place with a real messy people. And the benefit is putting massive dents in the gates of hell. The responsibility is showing up ready to live, love, and proclaim Christ. But here's the irony. I believe that if we focus on evangelism as we ought to and should, but if we do it to the neglect of loving one another, we will lose our evangelistic witness. The more cruciform or cross-shaped our love is for one another, the stronger our witness will be to an outside world. Let's pray.
this time of desperation When all we know is doubt and fear There is only one foundation We believe We believe We believe in God the Father we believe in Jesus Christ We believe in the Holy Spirit And He's given us new life We believe in the crucifixion We believe that He conquered death We believe in the resurrection And He's coming back again We believe So songs we sing And in our weakness and temptations We believe We believe We believe in God the Father We believe in Jesus Christ We believe in the Holy Spirit Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.